I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. 10 common myths about divorce. Couples in the process of splitting up need to wise up, say divorce lawyers. We reveal how later in the show. Merrin Somerset Webb joins us to comment on the latest news for investment trust investors not all of it bad. And can you save money and still have a social life? As the FT launches its thrift-off experiment, Kate Bearley is in the studio to discuss how to spend wisely and save in style. Welcome to The Money Show, the FT's weekly podcast about personal finance and investing. I'm Claire Barrett, FT Money Editor, bringing you this week's news in downloadable form. Have you been watching The Split? I'll confess, I'm absolutely hooked on this BBC One drama, which follows the fortunes and failures of a group of high-profile divorce lawyers in London. There have been some really big shockers in the series, and sadly, this is also true in real life, as people commonly make the wrong assumptions about divorce, and in particular, how your finances stand to be split. Joining me to discuss is Lucy Whiteching, FT Money's digital editor. Welcome, Lucy. Hello. Well, this got a roaring response online, not least because many of the most powerful myths about divorce concern adultery. Tell me more. Yes, that is the key word that got people commenting and reading the piece. But there are some other great myths in there as well. But um, so on the um, topic of adultery, so people often think that because their partner has committed adultery, you know, they've had an affair with somebody else, it's hurt them very deeply and it's very key to their feeling but they often think that they're going to get a bigger financial settlement but actually this isn't the case the courts recognize that marriages break down and what the courts are more interested in is what resources you each have available and how they are to be divided fairly so unfortunately if your partner commits adultery or behaves unreasonably they you won't automatically get a bigger settlement for them to be for you to get a more advantageous one, you have to actually look at how the party's behaviour has had an impact on your relationship and file for kind of unreasonable behaviour. So that surprises lots of people. But while we're on the subject of adultery, the actual legal definition rests on this being committed with a member of the opposite sex. Yes, this surprised everybody that I mentioned it to. It had people talking about it in the office and disagreeing about it. So I had to really go back to the lawyers and, and really check this one out. It's one of those archaic English laws that many believe to be, quite rightly so, discriminatory. But the way the English law works at the moment is that it only recognises adultery between a man and a woman. That said the courts may actually be sympathetic because they do understand that relationships happen between lots of different people. And so 
if you take it to the court and the judge looks at your case, then they may deem it to be unreasonable behaviour. So you won't automatically be able to file for grounds for divorce when adultery is committed with a member of the same sex. Well, thanks for clearing that up, Lucy. But the article you wrote in FT Money cites the 10 most common myths. So we've, we've dealt with two of them. Read the piece for the rest. But you also go into another worrying aspect that divorcing couples often don't think of, namely their cyber security. Yeah, so many people share their passwords with their spouses and um, when everything's rosy and the relationship is going really well, they um, this is fine, but actually they kind of forget that when things are going wrong that actually it's it's very easy with devices these days to look at something that your partner has sent because it may pop up on the screen or in some cases, high-profile cases, there's been examples of where affairs have come to light because uh, one partner has sent a text to the person they're having an affair with and it's popped up on the family ipad um so, grief <laughs> yes exactly so it's it's much more important to um, not leave yourself exposed online and one of the things that really surprised me was that people could see emails, you know, from your divorce lawyer. One was saying um, she she had found out um, because a password hadn't been changed. Yes, exactly. But the the thing to be said actually is don't be tempted to spy. So although you may have access to your partner's emails or you may be able to log into their um, WhatsApp or anything, it's illegal to actually access your partner's details. You know, I mean, that, that's quite obvious, but it may be, it, people might not really know about it. And actually, if you do come across something that you found in your partner's online accounts, then you won't be able to use this in law against them. And you also may end up with a with a prison sentence or a fine. Well, thank you very much there to Lucy Warwick-Ching. You can read her full report online now, The 10 Things You Ought to Know About Getting Divorced at ft.com slash money. I have to say the piece is excellent, but the reader comments at the bottom, ooh, <laughs> tasty. <Yeah. laughs> thank you very much, Lucy. Coming up on The Money Show, your chance to win a pair of tickets to the FT Weekend Festival worth £190. Before that, many listeners are fans of investment trusts, some of the oldest collective investment vehicles on the stock market. But oldest doesn't necessarily mean best. On the one hand, a report out last week showed that investment trusts have consistently outperformed other funds for much of the past 20 years. Hurrah! However, rows about fees are never far away, as FT columnist Merrin Somerset-Webb has been finding out, and she joins me on the line now. Welcome, Merrin. Hi, Claire. So first of all, as an investor, tell us why you love investment trusts. Well, I've always been a fan of investment trusts because I love the way that they can hold very long-term capital. You know, if you have an open-ended fund when people want to buy and sell, you actually have to buy and sell the assets. In an investment trust, the fund manager never has to buy and sell assets for short-term reasons. They can just hold them for a very long time. It's a pool of permanent capital. So that's very important. I love the fact that they have boards. I'm on a couple of investment trust boards myself, so I know what it, what it feels like to be there protecting the interests of the end shareholders. Boards don't always do what they're supposed to do, but they're there for a specific reason. I love that as well. Also, historically, they've had lower charges overall, a lower costs overall, should I say, than open-ended funds. But I've also always had this feeling that they, they tend, for most of the reasons I've mentioned, to outperform over the long term. Now, several studies have been done into this, but mainly by the investment trust industry. And that comes under, well, they would say that, wouldn't they? So last week, we had the first report out from a group of academics from Cass Business School looking at this properly to say, well, let's actually try and find out in a totally neutral 
academic point of view uh, on whether these things actually outperform or not. So they've looked back over the last 18 years, so it's not super long-term, but it's long-term enough. And the results are you know, rather more exciting for investment trust fans than you, than you would even have expected in that the performance gap between open-ended fund and closed-ended fund, so open-ended being the unit trust most people buy, closed-ended funds referring to investment trusts, comes in at about 1.4% a year. Now, that's real money. Compound that over a decade, and you're talking about an enormous difference. Well, yes, exactly. And it's all about compounding for our readers who, as we know, like lock and leave investments. They like to invest for the long term and they don't want to be fiddling around with their portfolios all the time, making, you know, chopping and changing for the for the sake of it. So this, I would imagine, would be magic to their ears. Well, absolutely. I mean, there's lots of caveats to it, of course, as there is with all data. You know, that we have the research doesn't take into account every single closed ended fund because lots are in sectors that can't be compared with unit trust. So if you have uh, infrastructure funds and this kind of thing, you can't compare them across the board. So it doesn't include everything. There's survivor bias. There's, you know, there's all sorts of things in there that make this data messy. And of course, it's important to remember that the average investor does not have the experience of being in the average fund. So the average, the average open-ended fund underperforms its benchmark by 80 basis points a year, 0.8% a year, which is shocking. But most people's portfolios don't do that because they're particularly FT readers, of course, are not stupid enough to invest in, in rubbish funds all the time. So the average fund is not the average experience. So there's lots of that stuff going on. However, there does seem to be something that suggests that an investment trust over the long term can do better for you than an open-ended fund. And again, I think that comes back to the points that I mentioned to the role of directors, possibly to to better management skill, who knows, uh, to the role of gearing. Investment trusts can borrow money to invest. There's a very small effect in the performance numbers on that, but it is there. It's interesting research, but another important caveat, it is historical. This is not about the future. It is about the past. And one thing that has happened over the last uh, decade or so is that the costs of a closed-ended fund and an open-ended fund have begun to come together. And one of the things that I suspect, although the academics don't bring this out, but one of the things I suspect has caused a lot of the outperformance of investment trusts has been their lower costs. Mm. So as that margin narrows, or as more than narrowed, actually, in many cases, we'll begin to see just how long-term the differences are. I suspect they'll remain, but they won't be as big. Well, on the subject of fees, you wrote your FT column last but one weekend ago about the ongoing spat between the board of the Invesco Perpetual Enhanced Income Trust, which is Mm -hmm. known as IPE, bit of a mouthful, and they have asked Invesco, who are their investment manager, to reduce the fees it charges them with (laughs) fairly... uh, disastrous results. Yeah, I'm writing about this kind of thing. It's all part of my campaign to make myself really popular in the financial industry. And this is, I think, taking me one step for- one step further down that path. But it's an interesting case because one of the things that investment trusts have all had to do, and uh, again, I say this from the point of view as an investor, a journalist and a director, one of the things that's been really important in the industry is to bring these costs down, to bring down management fees, to make sure that long-term performance is not affected by high costs. So all boards have been going to their managers, the people they delegate the management of the assets to, and saying to them, look, do you know what? Your costs are too high, 1% plus a performance fee. We can't have it anymore. We need all these fees down below 1% a year, preferably below 60 basis points a year. So the, the board of this particular trust did with this with their managers. And there are all sorts of shenanigans in the middle that it's quite hard to get a handle on. But the net result was that rather than um, go ahead with, with cutting fees down to a level that I think the board thought they agreed, Invesco resigned. And so there will now be, hopefully, a beauty parade of some kind and a new manager. The difficulty is, of course, that Invesco controls quite a lot of the shares Mm. in the trust. 
and therefore may have a chance of being able to force through the result that, that they want. So it's, a, it's an interesting case, partly because of the dynamic between directors and managers. And here we do see directors doing, uh, also it seems, doing what it is that we want them to do, which is acting in the interest of their end shareholders by forcing down costs. Hooray. Uh, we're seeing pushback from the fund management industry, not entirely unexpected. And the third dynamic that we're seeing here is this issue of shareholder democracy. You know, mm. so if Invesco can control, say, 16% of the shares, but managers to get their own way by voting voting those shares, and I don't know if they will or won't, of course, at this point, because it hasn't happened. But if they were able to use those 16% to get their own way with the trust, then that would uh, have, I think, interesting implications for uh, shareholder democracy in the sector. And of course, many of um, the shares in that trust are held by retail investors um, through nominee accounts, because they own them on online brokerage platforms. So when that comes to, you know, when push comes to shove on the vote, it's actually very hard to mobilise the votes of all of those small absolutely, investors. Absolutely, absolutely. And this is something that institutional and particularly activist, activist investors in, in, in investment trust know. I mean, I've, I've been uh, told recently by several people that the big activist funds in the US, etc., are careful when they're targeting investment trusts to go for investment trusts with very high levels of retail investors because they know that the higher the number of retail investors there are in their ordinary investors like you and me, the more likely they are to be able to get their way with a relatively small number of shares because we're so hard to mobilize because we're so um, you know spread around the platforms. It's hard to uh, do the admin to get your vote through on a platform, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, we've become effectively disenfranchised and that means that we are not able to exercise the democratic control we should have over a lot of the things that we own. And that's not just true of investment trust, by the way. It's true of pretty much every listed share in the market. Well, thanks very much there to Merrin Somerset-Webb. You can read her column in the money section of the FT Weekend newspaper this Saturday about the outperformance of investment trusts or read her column online, ft.com, from Friday morning. Who would want to be a millennial? We are consistently told that younger workers have never had it so bad depressed wages, less generous pensions and, of course, a totally unaffordable housing market. Saving money rather than spending it on avocados is broadly the solution given out by the popular press. Well, we don't do hair shirts on the FT Money Show, so we've started an experiment this week to hopefully prove that saving money does not have to be at the expense of having fun. Joining me now is my colleague Kate Bailey, who writes our popular millennial money column. Welcome, Kate. Hi, Claire. So firstly, can you explain how this thrift-off challenge came about? Well, this is part of the FT's new Millennial Moment series. Uh, so as you said, we all know that saving uh, is a big worry for millennials. We're a generation struggling to save for homes, facing a squeeze on earnings, um, and facing a worse pension future than previous generations. So we wanted to look at how important or just how important it is to save small amounts over time and how that can kind of really build up uh, to fairly significant sums over the long term and help with those things like pension pots and uh, your investments. But we wanted to look at it in a bit more of a fun way. So we decided that you and I are going to compete for a week and see who can have the most fun on the least money because we didn't really want to just stay at home with a tin of baked beans, which exactly. didn't really feel very millennial either. Uh, so yes, we're going to see which one of us can beat the other by finding the most inventive, low-cost things to do. Now, I should say at this point, I'm clearly not a millennial. I'm 41 years old, so I'm, I'm probably a little bit too young, she says, hopefully, to be a member of Generation X. But I have always been good at saving money, n- nevertheless. And I think that 
one advantage that I might have over people of your generation is that, you know, my thrift muscles are well developed. You know, you get used to the habit of saving money and once you're there, it never leaves you. So maybe a lot of the things that I'm doing already, like cycling to work, making my lunch every day, which let's face it, I could afford to go to Pret-a-Manger and spend £6 on an avocado bloomer. But, you know, I don't want to do that. I'd rather put the money aside still and spend it on a nicer holiday. I mean, yes, that's interesting because I I think I am almost the opposite, despite having been fairly cash-strapped for most of my young life. I think really my my go-to habit is a little more feckless. (laughs) So what are you, without giving too much of an advantage to me, what are you going to do over the course of the next week? Technology is going to play a big part, I think, in a lot of our decisions. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think the key, isn't it, is to do the kind of things that we would want to be doing anyway. So I don't want to stop going out. No. uh, Even eating out and seeing my friends. But yeah, I have been raking through the app store to find kind of useful apps that will let me do all those things either for free or just for a cut price so you know things like things like going to the theatre things like seeing, seeing comedy or music going out for dinner thrifty lunches so yeah the, the app store has been my friend so far Excellent. and I've also been starting with with making a budget so I've actually loaded a hundred pounds um, onto my Monzo card other ones are available on the market but this is something that is linked to my bank account but will give me a kind of distinct wallet of money to hopefully guide my spending and not make me think oh I can I can buy this because I've got an unlimited amount of money and I do think like the boring things like setting a budget can be important because if you don't make a plan then uh, then then what are you going to stick to but equally I've been talking to um, friends again not millennial friends who are used to finding ways of having fun on a limited budget one of the things I'm going to try is hosting a supper club Mm. which is quite a funky thing. Lots of people get very excited about about it. It's basically going round for dinner at a mate's house, but a bit a bit more organised. And, and hoping they will invite you round. Well, yes. <laughs> as part of the deal. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Otherwise, I'll be down on the week. But if readers have got ideas for us to try out, um, we're right at the beginning of the week, so there's still time to send in your ideas. Email us now, money at ft.com. And remember that the best entry will win a pair of tickets to the FT Weekend Festival in September, worth a cool one. £190, where you will get to meet me, no doubt Kate, and also Merrin Somerset Webb, who you heard from earlier. And the full terms and conditions are online at ft.com slash thriftoff. Well, Kate, I'll give you the last word. Do you think you're going to win this contest? I, I'm calmly confident, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> OK, well, we'll obviously be writing all about this and making a video for ft.com. We'll bring you news of that on a future podcast. That's it from The Money Show this week, however. We will be back next week at the usual time. Goodbye. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. When your skin feels nourished and glows, you radiate confidence. Osea makes giving your skin a glow up easy with their clean, clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. 
This seaweed-powered duo features two of Osea's best sellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com, code GLOW.